the Irish Times business podcast in association with Irish Life. Eight of the top ten Irish companies choose to do business with us. We know Irish Life. We are Irish Life. Hello and welcome to Inside Business, an Irish Times podcast with me, Dominic Coyle, filling in for Kieran Hancock. Later, we talked to Umber Kennedy about new employment and migration data published this week that threw up a couple of surprises. And Fiona Redden will join us to explain why investors in Irish forestry are unhappy. But first, Peter Hamilton has a roundup of some of the major business stories of the week. Uh, Peter, one of the big, the big uh, stories, maybe not in Ireland, but uh, in the States certainly, is this opioid court ruling. That's right. This opioid crisis in the US is taking more corporate prisoners. This week, earlier this week, the first uh, to fall was Johnson & Johnson. A US judge has ordered that they pay uh, 515 million euro. Um, the fact that the fine was about a quarter of what analysts had expected meant the shares actually rose on the day. But uh, what, what, the, what the court said and what the judge said was that Johnson & Johnson had used misleading marketing and promotion uh, of their painkillers, which can be addictive. Um, these were and, then... And th- there's the issue. When people think opioids, they think opiates, they think street drugs, things like that. But we're actually talking about painkillers that, that yeah. people across all, all countries take in huge quantities. That's the thing. These are prescription drugs. Uh, and, and I suppose, you know, that, as you say there, that's what led one lawyer to describe uh, Johnson Johnson as a, a kingpin uh, in the case. But, I mean, no, these are prescription drugs. And what happened in this case was that these painkillers were over... Or, sorry, what happens daily uh, is that these painkillers are, are overprescribed, which in the US in particular has led to a surge in overdose uh, deaths. So now Johnson Johnson has argued that its claims in its marketing materials have had scientific support and they are now appealing this decision. Um, so look, I, I suppose a bad week for them, not as bad as one had uh, we had initially anticipated. But but possibly bad for, for the industry in, 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 as a whole. In fact, it, it, it's odd really. Why would Johnson Johnson be implicated? Because as I understand it, in, in Oklahoma, the state where this ruling came about, they only account for 1% of the, the painkiller market, of these types of painkillers anyway. Ahead of the trial, Teva Pharmaceuticals and Purdue had settled. Now, I, I suppose the, the, the week has, or, or this story has taken another twist for, for Purdue. There was a media report this week that uh, from NBC News in the US that Purdue Pharma, which makes the painkiller OxyContin, that they've offered to settle more than 2,000 lawsuits for between $10 billion and $12 billion. Um, so they too obviously have been blamed for fueling this opioid crisis in the States. Uh, the first trials, the first of those 2,000 trials, they're due to start in October. Uh, and Purdue, people may not be familiar, is controlled by the wealthy Sackler family. This will eat up... Uh, a lot of their cash to, to deal with this if the settlement is correct. Purdue has not commented on the settlement. And of course, as you say, there's Teva is involved. And indeed, you know, it's not just a, a US issue. I think there are two other companies that, that are involved in, among these cases that are going to be heard in October are Irish domicile businesses. Endo, right. Endo International and, and Mallinckrodt. Uh, yeah. yes. So, uh, look, I mean, the thing is that this has the ability to spread now. Once these things start in the US, uh, one would generally see that regulators elsewhere might uh, might take a look at this. This crisis has been particularly well reported upon in the, U- the US. We haven't seen as much about it uh, in Europe, I think it's safe to say. Uh, that could well change in the coming months. And I suppose one crumb of comfort maybe for, for the drug industry is that the the charge on which they were, were pursued was a public nuisance charge, something more usually associated with dog fouling on pavements and the like. Yeah. Oklahoma is seen as having quite a loosely worded public nuisance law, whereas certainly other states appear, in, even in the US, 
appear to be be more more tightly worded, and that might mean it's more difficult for claimants to pursue these companies. I understand. Yeah, absolutely. It's an interesting way of going about it, and and that is the way they have gone about it. I I don't know what view Europe will take. We'll wait and see, though. Okay, moving along then, maybe coming back home uh, to a couple of big commercial property deals this week. Uh, one in particular, uh, Lugala Estates up in Wicklow, which is probably one of the best-known uh, residential properties in, in the state generally. Yeah, it, this was an interesting one, I suppose, uh, a sentimental one as well uh, for some. This was the estate that was home to the late Guinness heir, Garrick Brown. Um, so it has been sold. It was on the market for £28 million. It's understood to be have been sold for significantly less than that. So what the buyer is getting for this estate, they're getting 5,000 acres, first of all. Um, they're getting one residence, which is relatively modest <laughs> relatively modest in the scheme of things uh, which includes so the, the the main residence has three reception rooms and seven bedrooms um, so not as grand as one would expect for an estate of this size uh, and they also get seven lodges and cottages scattered over the estate for their friends and family should they wish to visit and this was an estate there was quite a bit of pressure I think on the state to, to step in and, and purchase this there was because of the extent of the land there was a suggestion that it could be used for tourism or something like that it would be of value to the state the state didn't come to an agreement in the end uh, we don't know why perhaps it, it was a financial thing but we don't know why um, so it, it has been a private buyer there was interest from other quarters uh, Dennis O'Brien was said to be interested at one point uh, as were the Westons uh, who own um, Brown Thomas uh, amongst others so there, there was interest in it we don't know who the buyer is at this point in time I'm sure that will become clear in the not too distant future Okay, but a, but a foreign buyer, we understand, anyway. A foreign buyer, that's correct. Yeah, that's correct. And uh, probably not of the same vintage, but another big deal announced uh, announced this week is the sale of Glasson Hotel and Golf Resort. That's, yeah, so this is uh, an interesting one as well because it is the expansion yet again of the Press Up Entertainment Group, which people will, uh, at this point, I'd be surprised if anybody does, hasn't come across it. They have a series of restaurants, including you know, the likes of Angelina's and Sophie's, hotels, including the Dean and Devlin. So this uh, uh, an ever-expanding hospitality company uh, controlled by Paddy McKillen Jr. Uh, and so his commercial property arm, Oakmont, has acquired this, this four-star hotel in Athlone for €9 million. Euro. It is their fourth... Uh, acquisition outside of Dublin. So they're developing a hotel in Galway and Cork uh, and a facility in Bray. So this is their fourth acquisition outside of Dublin and in Athlone. It is a perhaps unusual one for the group because of because it's a golf club and country club. They they don't have anything like this in their portfolio so far. It's been mainly restaurants and a small number of hotels. Um, so it's interesting to see what they will do with this because it's very regional and it's it's very different to what they currently have. But they're not, I understand that the, their initial statement was that they're not planning immediate change. It'll, it'll continue to trade as is and, and existing bookings will be on it because it's a wedding venue, That's I right. gather, among yeah, other things. Prim- primarily, and, 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 and those will be unaffected by this. So you'd imagine it could be, I suppose, because of the nature of wedding bookings, it could be up to 18 months before we see any significant change there. But, but it is still, a, I think, an interesting strategic fit in the group nonetheless. And and quite odd in the sense that it is quite a modern development as recently as 1993 it was a family farmhouse. That's right. Um, the, the at least not the hotel was but the original building on the site. The original building was just a house that's correct yeah and they had this land and developed it and it's a, the golf course is a Christie O'Connor course uh, and the hotel a four star hotel uh, more than 60 bedrooms there so 
Uh, and it, so that's again smaller than what Presso currently has in terms of hotels so uh, look interesting to see what they will eventually do with it as you say some time before that comes to pass yeah. and Phil's a geographic gap in their portfolio this is their first Midland purchase I think they've whether been that's a gap big that cities. needed to be filled uh, <laughs> one will never know yeah but going down to Cork now um, not, not such good news for, for a large number of workers at Apple that's right these were contract workers so more than 300 employees at Apple's Cork facility have had their contracts ended. What they were doing is they were checking recordings from Siri. Siri is the voice assistant uh, on Apple iPhones uh, and, and other devices. They were checking Siri recordings for errors. So Apple announced earlier this month that they were suspending the program in the wake of a story in The Guardian, which revealed that workers who were were checking these recordings frequently heard confidential medical information uh, and on some occasions couples having sex while they were checking these recordings. So this prompted uh, some unease uh, on Apple's behalf, clearly, uh, which led to them suspending the programme. So the, the unease on Apple's behalf presumably was on The Guardian reporting it because Apple must have known for some time yeah. that this was actually happening and it wasn't troubling their ethics too much at that point. Uh, absolutely, that, that, exactly. That, so, And as a result of that, they have gotten rid of these contractors all across Europe uh, and these employees in Cork uh, have been particularly badly affected because of the number of them and the size of, of the facility there. Um, because of, of course, most people will know, but for those who don't, obviously Cork is is Apple's one big base in Ireland and mm. they employ several thousand people down there, all told. They do, and, and they're a big out base outside of the US. Um, so these all of these graders were, were employed through contracting firms, I say. It, 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 it is similar to what has happened in Facebook in the past, uh, that... that uh, in terms of the, the the content reviewers in Facebook, this is a, a similar thing uh, in the sense that these wouldn't have been uh, necessarily high-earning employees and would have been on shorter-term contracts. Mm. Um, look, that they they now effectively have left Apple. It one ex-employee said in a report uh, that th- that there was no support for these employees. So. Now, th- th- this is the problem with with some of these. I mean, as I understand it, there's no redundancy. There's mm-hmm. one week's leave. Yeah. Uh, they, they had been suspended from work anyway since the start of August because the right. company had sort of thought they might return to, to these uh, audits but uh, or these gradings, as they called them, I gather. Mm. But but now this would seem to indicate that that uh, Siri, these Siri gradings will no longer take place, that, that this, it's gone. One would imagine it could well return in another guise and it could well happen in the US on a smaller scale. Uh who knows what Apple will do one of the most private public companies uh, in the world so it'll be interesting to see where they go Okay and finally uh, we can't let uh, today pass at all without some reference to the rather extraordinary announcement by Boris Johnson that he intends to uh, suspend the British Parliament for an entire month just so that they can't foil his plans to um, to leave Europe if, if it comes down to a no-deal crash. We've been doing well avoiding Brexit on this uh, podcast, but it can't be avoided today because, uh, as you said, Boris Johnson today has said that he was scheduling a, the Queen's speech for October 14th. What that effectively does is it limits parliamentary time for lawmakers who wish to prevent the UK from leaving the EU without a deal. There are suggestions, rather, that what this could do now is uh, prompt Jeremy Corbyn into uh, holding a no-confidence motion and that in turn could lead to Boris Johnson calling an election uh, which could well work in in his favour to increase his parliamentary majority. What Sterling did uh, on the day was it dropped against the euro 
and fell to 91 uh, pence against the euro. So it's significant for Irish exporters and the Irish tourism industry. If this trend continues, we will see fewer British visitors as a result. Um, And Nomura, the Japanese institution, they increased their odds of a no-deal Brexit to 44% versus their previous 40%. So it is getting a a bit more uh, tense, I guess. So not not for the first time in, in the Brexit saga, Britain's constitutional crisis is Ireland's pain. Absolutely. Uh, And one would have to imagine that it will continue to be so if there is an election and and Boris Johnson does get a uh, majority. That's not necessarily to say that Europe will come to any sort of deal. So uh, it could get worse again. Thank you, Peter. Join us after the break when Omber Kennedy will discuss the latest jobs figures. Only 29% of us know how much we need to live on in retirement. Irish Life is changing that with Empower, a new approach to company pensions that helps change the way your employees think about their future. For more, go to irishlifeempower.ie or talk to your pension consultant. We know Irish Life. We are Irish Life. Irish Life Assurance PLC is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland. All information sourced for Irish Life June 2015. Welcome back. Key figures on the economy are closely watched at this time of year by Minister for Finance Pascal Donoghue as he studies his options for Budget 2020. This week, the Central Statistics Office published its latest figures on employment in the Irish economy. Owen Burke-Kennedy, who has been crunching the numbers, joins me to explain what it all means. Owen, you'd start perhaps maybe by explaining what the figures are and their import. Okay. well, uh, what we got yesterday was uh, two batches of numbers the first was the Central Statistics Office uh, Labour Force Survey, which is the official data source for the labour market here. And we got um, migration stats, which includes the number of people coming in and out of the country on an annual basis. So the Labour Force Survey was uh, the one I was crunching and looking at uh, uh, most closely. Uh, and that showed that the annual increase in employment in the three months to the end of June, the second quarter of this year, rose by uh, 45,000 or 2 percent. Now, that was a slight moderation on previous quarters, but it was still very positive. Um, the figure showed that employment grew in about 11 of the 14 sectors that the CSO uh, covers. It shows that also unemployment fell by 13,500, 9.4% in the year to the end uh, of the second quarter. The headline rate of unemployment, however, was revised up to uh, 5.3%, which is yet another revision. Now, what seems to be going on here is uh, in the CSO's uh, stats, they, they basically um, project forward on the basis of their quarterly numbers and the monthly numbers then can suddenly uh, be revised. So we were actually down at 4.6% and now we're back up to 5.3%. Now the CSO said th- this situation isn't ideal, but uh, they're constrained by their methodology. Yeah, and, and this isn't the first time the CSO has had to look again at methodologies. We've had it with the, the economic growth figures recently and all the rest of it. So the CSO is consistently looking at how it compiles its data and trying to fine-tune projections and try to make them as accurate as possible uh, because obviously we report them, a lot of people interpret them, so it's it's kind of important to get them as good as we can. Is, and the problem is the monthly numbers are constantly being revised by the quarterly numbers, so there we have it. I think they're, you know, they're examining whether this is, is, a, is a, the best situation to have. So anyway, basically the headline figures are good, but that's not the full story, is it? No, it's not the full story. I mean, the annual growth rate did drop to 2%, which is the lowest one we've had for a while. But perhaps even more worrying is that there was actually a fall in employment in the second quarter of uh, by around 20,000 uh, or 0.9%. Now, that's the first absolute fall in the seasonally, seasonally adjusted uh, figure for several years. Seven years, exactly. So, And it's the, probably the worst performance since 2011. There's two ways of looking at this. The, the CSO were 
quick to point out that there was a large rise in the Q1 figure and that with statistical smoothing and the adjusted numbers, there, there, was a, uh, there was a fall then in the second quarter. They put it down to statistical methodology. Now, some of the analysts then said, well, is this the first kind of flicker in the sky of the Brexit uncertainty? Uh, is it international trade tensions causing a general slowdown elsewhere? So though the, those issues which have been circling the Irish economy for a number of months, even years, you know, may are we seeing the first evidence that it's, it's very difficult to tell? We'll need a number of quarters before we can say something. Absolutely. One quarter in its own, uh, we keep being warned not to see in isolation. And in fact, um, your colleague Simon Carswell, who was reporting on the migration and, and population side of these stats, noted that the data showed that in, in this quarter, more Irish people had left the country than, than immigrants have returned to the country, which uh, is, is also a an indication that there's maybe just something, some tipping point beginning to come. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting one that, and obviously, you know, the emigration thing is very emotive for us back here, but the figures also show that, you know, uh, 61,000 people came into the country during the same period, which is the kind of year to April. So at the moment, the economy is still attracting an influx of foreign labour. But yeah, as you say, it's pretty emotive to have that uh, level of immigration, emigration, I should say, uh, eclipsing the net inward migration. Mm. And, and of Irish nationals, I should say. And, and people are coming to this country, presumably the, the, the unemployment rate for, for foreign nationals coming in is also it still continues to be, to be uh, encouragingly low. So, um, so for, for, you know, there's no sense that the economy is topping out or that, that we, we actually can't afford to, to accommodate these people coming to, into the country. One of the, the sectors that we've been told needs foreign nationals to come in and, and boost the numbers has been construction, but it was one of the sectors this time around that didn't exactly show it was uh, bursting, booming ahead, at least in employment terms. No, it's been kind of one of the stellar performers of the Irish uh, employment uh, circuit for the last number of years. And as we know, there's been a kind of big uptick in building, uh, both commercial and residential. But the figures now for the second quarter show that it it, it broadly flatlined. So a lot of people have been looking at this number, wondering what's going on. I mean, some analysts believe maybe, you know, in terms of office construction, it's very visible around Dublin. There's cranes everywhere, but maybe have we reached a sort of peak level of office construction um, and developers maybe are reining in. Uh, on the residential side, then, you know, we've seen a marked slowing in headline inflation uh, and a pickup in unsold stock so those things may be playing on the minds of, of people planning to invest in the sector or people planning to develop. Right. And um, you, you mentioned analysts. Broadly, are, are, do they have a consistent view of what these figures mean or, or, or what do they have to say? No, there's, there, there, there's like everything in the Irish economy, there's a, there's a few more negative suggestions that this may be the beginning of uh, a sort of more global downturn that would affect a small open economy like Ireland. And then there's... Uh, Analysts saying, well, look, we've had stellar growth for a number of years, a number of quarters, and the thing has to kind of moderate. And you can see that we're kind of reaching near full employment, albeit those figures are moving up and down. But the, the kind of stellar growth rates that we've seen over the last few years have to moderate in some way. Now, whether this moderation actually leads to a slowdown uh, with all the international metrics that seem to be looking very risky uh, is anyone's guess at this stage. But at the moment, the headline figures remain relatively strong and the Irish economy looks healthy without being hot. Okay. And of course, that's, that's something the Fiscal Advisory Council and the SRI have, all, have both warned, of course, about maybe not uh, losing the run themselves in terms of fueling the economy. So they, they might be a little bit more satisfied by that. Of course, 
These figures are just part of the budgetary picture. And Ireland, obviously, is among one of the most open world economies, which means we can be hostage to events elsewhere. The minister presumably will also be looking actually at Britain and at the economies of our key trading partners. And that's not a very encouraging picture just now, is it? No, I mean, uh, the Brexit uh, situation is is very difficult to pin down. And uh, as a result, as as you know, a few months ago, uh, Pascal Donoghue said that he was, uh, you know, applying a, a twin track approach to the budget in October. So one route leads to uh, allowing a budget surplus morph into a budget deficit. This is in the case of uh, a hard Brexit that would allow about a four billion, four and a half billion flow back into the economy as a sort of cushioning effect to a hard Brexit. The alternative route, the route we had planned in the absence of Brexit is to run again a budget surplus, uh, saving a bit, keeping a bit of money back from the economy, which is kind of prudent in light of a, of a, a heating economy. And that would be a sort of set of budgetary measures you would deploy in the case that overheating is around the corner. So at the moment, it seems the economy is on a knife edge, uh, potentially moving one way, potentially moving the other. Very difficult to predict what, what is going to happen. I know uh, Minister Donoghue has suggested in September he'd have a clearer picture of where the UK is going. Um, at the moment, with today's uh, manoeuvrings in the UK, it would seem that uh, the prospect of a hard Brexit is inching that bit closer. But I mean, who, who would make a call at this stage? Okay, and also we we hear talk of Germany heading for recession, the US slowing down, both key key areas for us. So certainly the minister and the rest of us are going to be looking quite closely at any uh, numbers coming out, both here and internationally, over the next uh, the next month or so before he plans for which uh, which track he's going to take. Mentally very taxed, I'd say to use that pun. <laughs> Thank you, Hohen. After the break, uh, Fiona Redden explains why small scale investors in Irish forestry are less than happy. Back in the late 1990s, in the early days of the Celtic Tiger, forestry was touted as one of the more attractive investment options, particularly for small investors. Twenty years on, those forests may have grown close to maturity, but investors are unhappy that the promised growth in their investment return has not been realised. With me to discuss this is Irish Times personal finance specialist Fiona Redden. Fiona, let's start by winding the clock back to 1997. What made these forestry funds attractive for investors? Well, back in 1997, there were these funds set up. They're called Irish Forestry Funds. And they offered you a share in 10,000 acres. I don't know if it was 10,000 acres at the time, but a portfolio of Irish forests for as little as £500 per share. So that's about €630. Now, looking back, you'd wonder, you know, is it a case of if it sounds too good to be true? But at the time, it sounded incredibly attractive because for that £500 or €630 initial investment, you were getting projected. Now, these were projected or illustrative gains at the time of almost 15% a year, which would be compounded over the term, 30-year term of the investment. So your tiny little €630 could end up being worth 37000 if the fund had gone the full 30 years. And remember, that was tax-free. So, I mean... You know, you'd be hard to bet to find as good an investment as that. Absolutely. And, and you mentioned there £500, which lets us know just how far back in time we're talking about. Uh, I mean, th- these earliest funds predated Telecom Air and that, that great and ultimately disastrous exercise in shareholder democracy in Ireland. And even the SSIA schemes. And Forestry, of course, unlike unit funds and the like that we hear a lot about, was easily understood. It was a physical investment. 
Uh, and it, it, in many ways, it was even an early example of ethical or green investment. So how did it work? What, what, well, what did the, the sponsors offer I to mean, do? first of all, as you say there, it was pre-Ericum and stuff when it was for a low amount, £500. So they got a lot of retail investors into it. There was almost 12500 put up about €43 million euro over the period of the investments. And what they were told was, you put in your money, you buy a share, they're public companies, and you'd stay for the full term, 30 years. You get a copy of the company accounts every year, but you wouldn't be told, you wouldn't get dividends from it, and you wouldn't be told what, how your investment was performing. Rather, it was all based and structured around this final sale. So eventually, they'd sell it after 30 years, and then all the profits would be redistributed to the shareholders. Part the service charges, the management charges, of course, which were which built were in, presumably. Which were deducted every year and they from were all those company accounts and they were most definitely paid, yeah. Okay, so it all sounds very straightforward, but something went wrong. Well, yeah, I mean, I guess originally it was supposed to last another 10 years. It's not now. They've sold us. It was sold in May, all the funds, all the assets. The company behind it, Vian, no longer hold any um, of the forestry assets themselves. What they're saying and what they've told investors is that the climate for timber has changed significantly. There's a couple of factors there. Brexit, for one, they say 60% of Irish timber goes to the UK. Will that still be able to go, you know, at the same price, tariffs, etc. post-Brexit? Sterling has weakened substantially. That makes us less competitive in the UK market. There are other factors. There's this in forestation across Europe, the spruce bark beetle, which is leading forests across Europe to have to fell a lot of timber. A reef and reef plant there and so all this timber is coming to the market again some of it's coming into the UK which as I said is one of our big markets so it's they would argue that it's a very tough market out there at the moment for forestry that they were offered so they were made an offer sounded good it did give the shareholders a profit and so they decided to sell It sounds like they were very definite about Brexit in a world where most businesses will tell you that they're, they're, they're planning with great uncertainty this, these uh, sponsors were, were certain of their position that there was going to be no chance of, of a decent outcome from Brexit and no. so cut their, cut their well, limited their gains and, and, and crystallised uh, the, the amount. And, and in each transaction, there's the person who buys. So in this case, we've AXA investment managers buying into the investment. They obviously say they feel that there's great opportunity in Ireland, which I guess has raised the ire of the shareholders who say, why now, you know, if you could have waited another 10 years? And because of the way the fund is structured, as I said, you're not getting an annual update in a sense. So it's hard to know how it really has performed. And also shareholders weren't told how much the assets were sold for. So when you work out the returns, you know, how do you work out the returns? And of course, the very first of these funds wasn't due to mature to 2027, some of them going into the 2030s. Yeah. So it seems precipitous to decide how Brexit was going to play out in 2027. And, I mean, it, it, going back to the original projections, they say it was a very different time. But, of course, I mean, we went through Ireland being broke and the funds weren't sold then. So, I mean, you know, it, it's difficult. You can understand why investors are somewhat sceptical about why now, when, as you say, there's still plenty of time there to turn it around. So, what I mean, th that's what the sponsors have to say, the whys and wherefores. It sounds like the investors don't altogether believe them and are somewhat unhappy about the mechanics of how the, the sale was, was conducted. Yeah, well, one of the key issues for investors is that they weren't asked as shareholders to vote on the sale of the company. Now, the company says they were preferential shareholders, so they didn't have any voting rights. 
So legally, they weren't required to ask them. And um, there now it seems it has emerged that there's a group of investors and they're going to try and take legal action or seek legal advice, at least, I suppose, for now, to see whether or not they have any comeback on that. It, it does sound like so many of these, these investments where the investors take all the risk over the long term and have none of the rights to information or, or decision or anything else. But I mean, there's a, is there a lesson there for investors in general? I mean, it's not regulated. The Central Bank has confirmed that they never had any oversight of, over Irish forestry funds, which limits the, your, your comeback, you know, because you can't go to the ombudsman now with this because it's not a regulated entity. So where is this going to end up now? You say they're, they're looking for legal advice. Where do, we, where do we think this might end up at this point? Well, some of the investors are hoping for that those projections that the company would um, honour those projections. But, I mean, you'd have to say that's very unlikely. They were just projections given. And you'd have to, I mean, not, I don't know what investment has performed like that over that period. And presumably, I understand the, the, the sponsors say that, yes, they they have locked in the, the original investment and they've locked in gains, That's not it. 15% a year, I think, something closer to Two maybe a fifth percent. of that. 3%. They have given the total return, according to the company, is between 40 and 107% over the period. But over 20 years, for some investors, they haven't really beaten inflation even. So, it, you know, I mean, it has been quite a poor investment. And you'd say, and now the company is saying, you know, it's negative rates environment. But of course, it wasn't negative rates for not, not that long ago. I mean, we'd banks given 5% just to let your money sit there completely risk free. Well, but, but ultimately, <laughs> you're looking at investors taking a chance of putting more money into pursuing this for a company that presumably doesn't have the assets to find the difference between 2 to 3% and 14 or 15%. One would imagine. But I mean, we don't know how much they sold it for either, which so, is what the investors would say. So a cautionary tale, especially in this era of looking at, at ethical investment and green investments exactly. and, and sometimes unregulated investments Unreg- that look, look yeah. nice and promise promise to make you part if, of a, a better world. If it sounds too good to be true, possibly sometimes it is. Fiona, thank you very much. Today's podcast was produced by Declan Conlon and Jennifer Ryan with JJ Vernon on sound. Until next time, goodbye and thanks very much for listening.